Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the humble podcast that you listen because you feel sorry for the hosts. Looking for pity listens these days. How are you doing, Laura Heyman? Doing good, Clark Massey. All right. Today, in 60 seconds, we are going to summarize where we're at in the Missioner's Manual, catch you up with the kind of big picture concept, and then we're going to continue with this chapter called Approaching the Good News. And at the end of that, we've got a couple little random updates. Anything you want to throw in now? No. Then let's roll. Let's roll. All right. So the big arc of the missioner's manual is to first realize that the problem of man and the problem that we all are dealing with is basically a problem of lying, of lying to ourselves, you know, and it's not so much a problem of truth, like a philosophical debate about like, what's the nature of truth? How do you know there's truth? It's much more like, no, there's truth, but you don't want it, you know? And it kind of is akin to this idea that we hide from God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, which ultimately when you play hide and seek with God, you're just lying to yourself because you can't hide from God, you know? Right. So when you start realizing that that's the basic human problem, then the next question is, how do we wake up from it? How do we quit lying? How do we come to terms with truth? And the beginning of that path that we covered, was like asceticism. Um, You strip away, you go towards silence, you try to recollect. And with these tools, you're starting to get ready to deal with the truth and be honest with yourself, you know? And then we, the last time we covered the manual, talked about this idea of bad faith, where there's often like contradictions in your life um, where you believe two things or accept two things that are contradictory um, and you don't want to rationalize them. You know, you've been mm-hmm. avoiding that topic. You don't want to actually figure that out, right? And when you start like discovering these things through your recollection, becoming brave enough to sort it out is like the task, right? All of this with prayer, ultimately, you'd love it if God could help you in future contemplation to help you sort this stuff out, right? Right. I, I think another way is just like uh, being willing to stand naked before God. Right. To go back to, and that's like a thing that we feel as painful and embarrassing and everything, you know, <laughs> which like you said, is a silly contradiction, you know? Right. Yeah. And yeah. we also know that by standing naked before God, only the greatest things will happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like the truth will set you free, but it's also yeah. the scariest thing, yeah. you know? Um. So to the extent that this is a work that we're going to participate in and do, uh, we have to talk about, we had to talk about asceticism and recollection, et cetera. But now you have to start talking about what are your sources of truth? What are your sources of like you figuring out the, like when, when you start figuring out these truths, you're like creating the stones of a really good foundation in the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not easy because it's once again, getting out of that self-deception problem. So that's what this next chapter is, is starting the approach towards What are your like signposts towards finding the truth? And the first thing to realize is here's the way it's stated in the manual. The good news resonates with the human experience and the great common experience of man is the foundation for evangelization. Kind of the two sister ideas there are God created everything. He created everything outside of you. He created everything inside of you. Everything about God, in a sense, is consistent with his creation. Like, you're not going to be discovering truths that contradict, in a sense, reality, 
right? God yeah. is the reality. So we know there's a fall. There's like this taint, but the ultimate blueprints and the ultimate structure of everything is from God. Um, an interesting way of thinking here is this kind of helps understand this kind of idea of what it means to be a Thomist or what it means to be an Augustinian. Augustine oriented kind of understanding God by looking at those human experiences that are internal to you, you know, your soul, your psychology, your body, your, you know, your interior life, you know, and showing how that was created by God and consistent with God. And Thomas is doing the opposite or not the opposite. He's doing a complementary work in a sense of showing that God is in the creation that surrounds you like an mm -hmm. external view. Right. Mm. Um, Father Benedict Rochelle, the founder of the uh, CFRs, used to say he thought that Thomas and Augustinians were born. You it know? wasn't like an intellectual decision, more a disposition that people naturally had. Yeah, it's not that, like you went to college and became yeah. one, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's interesting. I, I think like an, maybe another, you know, like it's like... Uh, Catholics spend time talking about like the relationship between faith and reason, you know, and, and, um, sometimes it feels like you're, well, you need to make sure those two things are congruent. Like the Catholic faith is not going to ask you to believe something that's congruent to reason. And it's like, I mean, that's, um, that is opposed to reason. And I, I think this is related, but it's like, we're also not going to ask you to believe something that is inconsistent with like human experience, you know? Right. Um, and you have to, you know, with like um, maybe a scientific principle that might initially seem to go against your understanding of God, you might have to wrestle with it. And similarly, you have to wrestle with like your human experience of the world and the reality of the world. Right. And as you discover truths or discover the good news of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. which is many layered, it's not just like he died for your sins. It's a many layered good truth, um, good news. Uh, it should be unlocking and making sense of your experiences. It should be yes. like, oh, wow, now the world, now I understand why that happened. You know? And I, yeah, in other parts of our manual, and I think, you know, it's like as you come to understand and accept and try to live by these like truths you're discovering, you become more yourself. And, and when we say that the good news should resonate with human experience, you're going to come become also like more like you should be resonating with other people and you know it's not like um setting yourself apart necessarily and be becoming like uh, like um not being able to be understood by other people you know like it should it should make you sort of you should make more sense to other people as you accept and incorporate you know the the good news in your life you just put that in a different way, but like that is exactly the advantage of the evangelist, mm -hmm. right? You're not actually evangelizing something foreign. You're evangelizing something that unlocks someone's life and makes sense of yeah. it. The example I use to like try to explain this, and we've all met Christians who don't do this, by the way, or maybe even ourselves, we don't do it perfectly. And we have this problem. Um, mm -hmm. When I was a kid the 8-bit Nintendo came out. I remember when the Atari was the thing, and then I remember when the 8-bit Nintendo blew the doors off the Atari, right? Mm -hmm. And I was not one of the first kids to get one, and you'd hear a lot about Super Mario Brothers. That was the big game that launched the 8-bit Nintendo, you know? And when I went over to a friend's house 
who had this Nintendo, uh, I was like taken aback because I'm like watching him play Super Mario Brothers and I don't know what's going on. He asked me if I want to play and I go, well, yeah, but can I see the rule book? And he's looking at me very strangely, like, what do you mean the rule book? And I'm like, well, you know, like, what are the rules of this game? Like, how do I play? Do you, can you show me something, right? The thing about Super Mario Brothers was it had no rule book. And it was like as if the first game that had no rule book. Mm-hmm. The way you find out the rules of Super Mario Brothers is you like run into walls and feel them out and discover it in this like kind of like trial and error type way. And you learn the yeah. rules by like living in the reality of Super Mario Brothers. It right. can take too long to complete a level. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, there's yeah. a clock that matters. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I just learned that, you know, by by losing the game or dying. Yeah. You know? And it's also interesting because Super Mario Brothers never tells you what the point is. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's people who have decided that speed runs are kind of the most interesting thing to them or finding every single, you know, uh, Coin, Easter egg. Flower. Yeah. Yes. Every little hidden thing in the universe is the interesting mm-hmm. thing. Um, or, uh, completing everything without dying is the, you know, without losing a single life is the most interesting. So it's this interesting game that allows you to define the objective, allows you to s- discover the rules. And in that way, it's very much like life, you know, like you find out what's permitted, like people can tell you what the rules are, but really you find out what's, what works and doesn't work by doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the same time Super Mario Brothers was coming out, we little kids, I would have been like early elementary school, we all thought the best job to be when you were growing up was a Nintendo game counselor. Counselor? Yes. I don't even know what... Okay. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. you've. Uh, yes. All right. So there was this magazine called Nintendo Power Magazine. Mm-hmm. And man, you had to be, I mean, your kid, you're, you were kind of spoiled as a kid. If you got this magazine, like this was yeah, like, I, I remember like a kid bringing that to school. Like, Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. 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 I mean, every Nintendo power was probably read by 20 kids because it right. was passed exactly. around. Yeah. yeah. Very valuable <laughs> thing to have. Right. But it was like, not only did you have the Nintendo, you had the magazine that explained it, you know, yeah. and in the magazine, it would tell you where the Easter eggs were. It would tell you a secret code or it would tell you a trick. Yeah to get past a level, right? Yeah. Where to get this invisible one up or whatever. Yeah. And the magazine was written by the game counselors. And the other thing was there was a number at the back of the magazine that you could call (laughs) (laughs) and the number would charge you. Like, so these little kids would call (laughs) and the parents would get this like telephone bill with like these big charges. Yeah. It was like, uh, for talking to uh, game experts at Nintendo, right? But this was like the career we wanted. Mm -hmm. I guess today kids want to be professional video game players. We wanted to be the person who helped the little kids learn how to beat the video game, right? So um, this is kind of what Catholicism is. The Nintendo Power magazine is essentially the catechism. It's like it is... Like the leg up of the missionary is we have some things that aren't even from man. They're from God himself, from the creator of the game or from the creator of this life that you're living and yourself, the creator of the very interior being of you. We have revelations that help this thing make sense. Yeah. Right. I um want to uh, recently I was listening to one of my favorite athletes, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. and um. 
he was being asked by the podcast host. Um, well, it was interesting because the podcast host is like a health and nutrition guy and he's like a doctor, like a medical doctor. And um, it was like kind of a podcast between two unequals because like Laird has obviously sort of understood some things about life that this other guy has not yet, you know? Um, and uh, he was like, well, how do you get over the fear? You know? And at first he's like, Laird is like, well, you need the fear. Um, but then second, it's like, we have a really atrocious relationship with death. And it's like, we need to make that relationship. Okay. And the podcast host is like, Oh, well, how do you do that? And he's like, well, you get right with your creator, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. and it's like, you need to <laughs> be able to think you can kind of reasonably face your creator at the end of your life and say, um, and it was kind of like the host was like, Oh, <laughs> and, and he said, listen, if you don't, if you're not sure if you believe or not, whose life wouldn't be better if they followed all the 10 commandments. And I, I love that. It's wow. like, yeah. Yeah. He's just saying the street value of this information yeah, yeah, but, is quite yeah, valuable. But the, and the, there's something, there's like something true. That's like, you can't deny. It's like, if, if you didn't covet your neighbor's wife and you didn't lie to people, <laughs> You, you just would be happier, you know? Um, right. Yeah. To me, like, this gives me a lot of hope as a missionary, right? Mm -hmm. Because it means that whenever I realize something about God, when I realize something about the universe, it's an incredibly helpful piece of information, mm -hmm. right? And not just to me, it's actually that which I can give to others that will be very helpful, yeah. right? And yeah. so it's different than, like, a persuasion that's like, like, say I was a communist, I wanted to make more communists. It's different than that. Like, it's like, then I have to like, say, I have to argue over this viewpoint. That's not what evangelization is. Evangelization yeah. is like, I have some keys. I have some insight keys. Mm -hmm. They're not even mine. They're revelation, basically, that will help you unlock your own life's potential, you know, and will be very beneficial to you. And I can't sell them. Like anybody who's trying to sell the gospel needs to just go to the back of the line, whatever. Yeah. Um, I have to give them to you for free, you know? And part of, you know, what evangelization also is, is helping draw people out of their own lies. You know, like I deal with a lot of addicts and like an addict will have an idea that, you know, it's their spouse that makes them do this or yeah. they do this because of their parents or whatever. Right. And, and they have to kind of come or, to or, terms. Or I'm an okay kind of addict because this drug is better or safer than this other. There's all these like different, right. some of them are almost comical. <laughs> yes. And, and in a way it's like, truth's not relative. I mean, like if they just look yeah. at the facts, they'll realize that this is not true. What they're saying, mm -hmm. you know? So helping them kind of like walk towards that and they have to want truth for this to work. Like someone has to love truth and want truth or evangelization is fairly wasted, you know? Yeah. Um, I tend to think of it as not wanting it or loving it. I tend to think of it as being ripe, you know, like when you are like in a moment in your life where you're like ready for it, you know, yeah. that's the right moment, you know? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it's like uh, sometimes atheists, you might meet like an atheist or a, an agnostic that is in fact very ripe because they are like desperately <laughs> trying to get after the truth. And, and so far, like atheism is the thing they've arrived at that makes the most sense. Right. Um, and then occasionally I, I, I feel like you meet someone who's so committed to their self-deception, you know, <laughs> um, not ripe. Well, yeah. 
what I mean by ripe also is, you know, with the atheist, they have that search desire and that search mm-hmm. desire could be a love for truth and could be, be very helpful in evangelizing, you know, it could be something else too, though. It could be right. But what yeah. I mean by ripe is like the things in their life and the emotions and the setting of their life has gotten to the point where they need a solution or they need, or they're ready to move on, you yeah. know? And it's not even just that love of the truth, but they're just at this point, this life change moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and for adults, for like, like once you're past say 26, it's like harder to come to those to really transitional moments like that than when you're young, when you're young, you can transition every three months into, you know, new ideas. You know, you go, you go to study abroad and you come back like a new person, you know, and like, (laughs) but, but at some point you kind of settle those things down and then it gets harder. It takes more, more work, you know? Um, So the second great thesis in this chapter is, this is kind of redundant, I guess. If someone denies parts of the faith, they're denying part of themselves and their own experiences. Now, this is recognized, this idea of denying part of yourself and denying the truth on purpose, this lying issue, you know, everyone recognizes this. And when I say everyone, I mean, um, you know, Kierkegaard wrote, uh, every man is more or less afraid of the truth. Uh, the postmoderns, um, believe this. That's why they think that every group, be it a racial group or a, a socio status group or a sex is so blinded by their own self-interest that they can't arrive at the truth. Yeah. Like Plato's cave is another. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Self-deception is just ripe everywhere, you know? And Paul has an interesting two takes on this, right? St. Paul at one point is correcting someone. I think it's in Corinthians and it's of somebody who slept with his father's wife or something. or And uh, he's correcting them and he says, even the pagans know not to do this. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. and that the interesting part of that statement to me is that even the pagans know that much truth. Right? And in another point in Romans, he says, he says once again about pagans, he says, the knowledge of God is clear to their minds. God himself has made it clear to them from the foundations of the world. Men have caught sight of his invisible nature, his eternal power and his divineness as they are known through his creatures. And there is no excuse for them. Although they had the knowledge of God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They became fantastic in their notions and their senseless hearts grew benighted. This is kind of saying that this is kind of why the papal encyclicals are now addressed to, um, all men and women of, of goodwill. Goodwill, right? It's a, in a sense like if someone is really trying to know truth and they haven't discovered Catholicism, well, one, great to evangelize those people, but it also, there is a lot that can be done even mm-hmm. before you get to the revelation of God. And I think that it's because, in a sense, God has written it on their hearts. That's a mm-hmm. saying of St. Paul. And I think the problem with our hearts is that our hearts are growing um, like confused, you mm-hmm. know, or, or they're kind of getting blurred. Right. And I think the situation of the evangelist and the situation of the good news is like when you're looking at like a sign far away, like a street sign, and you can't quite read the name of the street. But if I told you the name of the street, it would become it would snap to be clear. 
it would be like, oh, that's exactly what that says. You know, the shape of the letters and everything completely conform to the answer you gave. That's also the good news. You know, that in a sense, we already had it and it became blurred. And by revealing it, you know, you, you self, it's self-evidentially true because you're comparing it to what's already on your heart. Once again, an enormous, you know, advantage for every evangelist. Like evangelists yeah. need to understand that that's what they're trying to do. And also that's how you, as someone trying to come out of the lies you tell yourself, how you discover those lies. Mm-hmm. is because that's, that's part of the evidence of the truth when, when it hits you. So what's the opposite of realizing the truth in this way? I think the opposite is, like, if you're being possessed, like, say you are a communist in Russia, right? So maybe you're a well-meaning communist, and you start the revolution, and after a while you have to be like, man, we've killed a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then a little while later, you'd have to see all the people starving and be like, well, it seems like people are poorer Worse than, because yeah. of what we're doing, right? Now, a true ideologue will not allow that reality to correct their thought. Mm-hmm. You know, like a true ideologue would like maybe be like a critical race theorist or something who will be making people poorer and worse off, but never let that make them doubt what they're doing. You know, and Catholics can be this way too. Like a religious person can create that religion into an ideology which is which is incredibly an abuse of God, right? Like yes. God has got to be fundamentally a relationship and a love and all these things, right? But what you can do is you can come up with some unworthy idea of what Catholicism is and go to war with it and ignore the casualties. Right. You know, and you see this, you know, a parent could do this to their family or a pastor could do this to their parish or you could just be doing this to yourself, you know? So part of this is just like, Hey, if you're looking for the good news and the truth, it's actually embedded in reality. So wake up and, yeah, you know, start following that. But I think um, just with the, I, um, along with the idea of an ideologue, it's like we all have kind of these like um, images that we build up about ourselves, these ideas, you know, and it's like, if you think of like high schoolers, it's like, oh, I'm the punk rock kid or I'm the surfer boy or I'm the football player, you know, and it comes with all these ideas that aren't like really who you are essentially, but it's like, we have like uh, hundreds of these things that we tell ourselves like, Oh, this is who I am, you know, that are not actually your core. And I love this. I love this um, idea in the manual. That's uh, the holder of a false self image or worldview lives in anxiety that the, that their bubble will be burst. Um, and so they're kind of like fighting tooth and nail to defend this like false image or ideology or whatever. Um, and it's like when we are like letting God kind of burst these little ideas, we like, you know, it leads to like freedom, you know, and letting go of that anxiety, uh, because then you, you know, like who you really are and what your self-worth really is. And it's not based on these perceptions that you're trying to project or think people have or whatever. I think that's perfect. And that that's kind of the corollary to the ideologue problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people have problems with being an ideologue. Some people have problems with false identities, right? Mm -hmm. And I think like the young person problem is really obvious because most people who are like, High school athletes are just not athletes come college and aren't athletes at all come 25. Right, yeah, right? And, and you can be an exceptional athlete and uh, blow out your knee, 
you know, like that's. <laughs> right. Um, but I mm-hmm. think the more painful ideas for us, like middle aged folks, um, it's like maybe you thought that you had a great artistic sense or you had a great mm-hmm. novel within you or you had a philosophical mind or you were fashionable even or trendy. Right. And all of this is going to be destroyed. Yeah. You know, and it could be destroyed ideally for something better. Mm-hmm. You know, like it could be that you're not writing the great novel because you raised eight kids and eight kids are better. Yeah. You know, these eight yep. people are better than your novel, you know, and you gave up the novel for it. And maybe you didn't even choose to. And maybe you're kind of upset or sad about it, but you got to somehow figure that out. Like you weren't writing the novel because you were doing something better. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's that was a false identity in a way. Right. Yeah. Or you weren't the great artist or like even when you're, you know, <clears throat> maybe you went to grad school or something and you feel very smart about something. You're just not going to feel that smart when you're you know, got eight kids or getting older and, or you're literally just going to not be that smart because you're going to get Alzheimer's or dementia Mm -hmm. or something like that. Right. So all of these ideas of who we are have got to, um, give way to the greatness of who you are. Yeah. Which is like naked baby in front of God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. And God's kind of a baby too. God's the ultimate simplicity. He's not some like sophisticate or something like that. He's like, Mm -hmm. I am the simplicity of all goodness and love and I can ga ga goo goo with you. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So the idea in the manual so far is that you are laboring, you know, you are trying to find the truth. We've now kind of pointed out that the truth is reality itself you know, and we'll talk about other form, other sources of truth like scripture, but the very reality you swim in both interiorly and exteriorly is God's truth and God's creation. And God is shot through all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, I, I think sometimes you're trying to find it and sometimes it's bumping up uncomfortably against you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're not going to be finding this just through a life of asceticism. What you're going to find this through is Jesus is the way. That's what that means. Like he is the way in which this will unfold. Like by following Christ, these truths, this good news, this reality will make greater sense to you. And following Christ is a strange thing because Christ will tell you to do things that make no sense to you. And I don't mean like locutions. I mean like in scripture, he'll just tell you like, you know, give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing or give your money to the poor and come follow me or And this is very much like the second great metaphor of this podcast, the old movie, The Karate Kid. All right. And the idea of The Karate Kid is that this kid wants to be a karate master and he goes to the great sensei on his street and says, hey, please train me as a karate master. And the guy agrees, but then tells him to go like wax his car and then like sand his deck. Right. And the kid thinks that what's happening is he's paying his dues to the karate master because he doesn't have any cash for the lessons. Mm-hmm. Right. And that by waxing his car, he'll then earn a karate lesson. Right. But what is the reveal at the end is that it was the waxing of the car and the sanding and all these things that were the training. Yeah. You know? And so Christ following Christ is like this too. He's going to give you a lot of things that seem mundane but in fact 
are the essence. And I think that's the end of the manual for today. What do you got to cap that <laughs> off, Laura? Um, I don't know. I was just going to comment on like Mr. Miyagi is like trying to. Also, part of the point of the Karate Kid is like there's a kid that could have like sort of the same level of skill, but he doesn't have that internal deeper wisdom, you know, and it's like Mr. Miyagi is trying to give him the internal deeper wisdom to make him a good fighter, you know. Right. And Chesterton is constantly wrestling with this. Like once I kind of got this idea from Chesterton, it made a lot of his work feel redundant. He's kind of wrestling with this idea that we want the adventure, but the adventure is right before you. Yeah. You know, the adventure could be loving your husband or loving your wife or waking up for your child in the middle of the night. Like that is the adventure, right? And, Mm -hmm. and Chesterton does this, like you'll have a book where a man um, goes all the way around the world to find adventure and ends up at home. Yeah. I think another idea is like, um, well, sometimes like it's like our self-image stuff. It's like kind of a shortcut. Like you want to be seen as a person that loves to hike, you know, but do you actually go on the hikes, you know? And I, in our twenties, Ryan and I would joke about this. Like this was always like the thing that you would say at a bar or a party, like, oh, I love to hike too, you know? And then someone asks you the horrible question, like, oh, what was your last great hike? And you're like, (laughs) 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 I went hiking 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's somehow like you want, I don't know, you want to be seen as a great family man, but you're not (laughs) showing up at home or something, or you want to be seen as this adventurous person and you're not like grabbing life right in front of you by the reins and like going for it. And right. Yeah. All right. Let's transition. Great. All right, Laura, I have a great piece of news for you. Longtime listeners will know that Laura has been getting uh, sad about the uh, Everest, the Mount Everest climbing industrial complex. Well, a new record was recently set at Everest, Laura. Oh, like we talked about Everest kind of being easier to climb than ever before, you know, and that people just kind of get enough money and, you know, get yeah. in shape and do it. You know, the youngest person ever just went to the Everest base camp. <laughs> the new record is a two year old was at the Everest base camp. So all these egomaniacs that want to climb Mount Everest can just give it up now because a two year old can do it. So there right. you go. Yeah, apparently it wasn't, I kind of figured like if you had 20K and, you know, could run five miles a day, maybe you could figure out how to go up Mount Everest, you know? And now it's like, actually, you could just get carried there at two. <laughs> apparently only the 20K was necessary, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it like, and I, once again, there's also this problem that the Sherpa tribe that like helps everyone climb Mount Everest is probably like having babies on base camp or something like this, right? <laughs> so it's like every, you know, we give childbirth at base camp, you know, or, you know, yeah. they set all the records, but they don't count because they're the Sherpas. Yeah. Once I figured out, I wish I could remember this number. I figured out like, um, I figured out how many people were climbing Mount Everest every year and how many uh, people were dying on Mount Everest every year. And it was like risk of death. Like we don't take that risk. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, Meaning it was very I think risky it's crazy to take it. Well, maybe base camp, getting to base camp, whatever, but uh, whatever, like even two year olds can do that. But um <laughs> Oh yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. All right. 
I also want to move over to one other point. So, by the way, we almost did zero news today because there are no new crises in the world and no crises have been solved. There's an emerging crisis that has yet to be resolved. So maybe we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Oh, yes. If, if we go to war in the Middle East three weeks later, you'll hear from us about it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but the thing that's kind of interesting right now is this great creative writing project that's going on. So um, <laughs> <laughs> the Senate put together a $118 billion immigration bill. And there's been a lot of ink written about this. Um, it, sometimes it's bipartisan. Sometimes it's right wing. Sometimes it's from Biden, just depending on who's writing. Um, mm -hmm. So here is the breakdown of the $118 billion Senate immigration bill. It will limit immigration to 8,500 uh, illegal crossings a day. So let's put that in context. That's a the Baltimore metro area, not the city of Baltimore, but the whole metro area is about 3 million people. All right. Mm -hmm. In two years at 5,000 people a day, you would have a new city of Baltimore every two years of just undocumented people crossing the border. So at 8,500, it's, uh, yeah, a lot faster than two years. Yeah. Every couple of years, we'd have a major American metroplex of like undocumented people. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so a, mil a billion and a half is going to supporting undocumented people who are already here, sending it to states so they can like give them services. Um, about 18 billion is going to the border itself to just help process people. Mm -hmm. And so we're already at about 20 billion of the 118 billion, right? Um, 60 billion goes to Ukraine in the immigration bill. So three times as much as goes to, okay, keep going. One, one fifth of the funding. All right. So the, the punchline is one Wait, fifth keep, of the no, funding. No, going, okay. All right, all right. So, sorry. Right, so 20 billion total goes to the border. 60 billion goes to Ukraine. 14 billion goes to Israel. Two and a half billion goes to getting ready to fight uh, Iran, essentially in the Middle East Red Sea area. 5 billion goes to get ready to fight China. And... 10 billion goes to uh, NGOs that operate in Ukraine, Israel, and Gaza. So that's just what that is. You know what I mean? It's the great immigration bill, which about yeah. one fifth of it is about immigration. All right. And the interesting thing about it, you know, so I don't know, like if you told me somebody was trying to pass that bill, I would be like, yeah, sounds, sounds like what they would try to pass. But it's been interesting just to go read the headlines about it. Yeah. You know, about right-wingers destroying the immigration solution and et cetera. And it's just like, this is like a great creative writing project. Like, I just didn't realize how far. Do you mean the bill itself or all the media reporting about it or both? The media reporting about it. I guess yeah. the idea that the Senate would put together this thing doesn't shock me. The way yeah, yeah, yeah. it's being pitched, it's like, wow. Yeah, you know? I, I do. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't follow the actions of the Senate that closely, but this does seem like, because a lot of times there will be a bill that a lot of people can agree on. And then there's this like tiny thing at the end that you're like, Whoa, no, you know, but this, this isn't a tiny thing at the end. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about someone who we all believe is probably certifiably, uh, has a mental health disorder. The dude who walked into the Capitol on January 6th with his shirt off wearing Buffalo horns and a Buffalo hair hat. Right. The shaman. The shaman. QAnon shaman mm -hmm. is, is his slang name. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the January 6th shaman. Right. This guy is 
I think we all agree that this guy has a mental health problem. He is running for office in Arizona. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and I listened to him talk and his first point on his platform was, I believe that every bill that passes uh, either the Senate or the Congress should only have a single issue in it. Like mm. an immigration bill should just be an immigration bill. A Ukraine bill should just be a Ukraine funding bill. And I'm like, why is the, one of the craziest people in America <laughs> coming up with the only sensible Makes idea I have heard? Too I know. <laughs> only a crazy man could come up with that idea, you know? So anyway. All right. Well, that is where we're at. Um, what so else do you got to say? So be careful becoming too sensible. <laughs> You'll end up with your shirt off wearing uh, <laughs> buffalo horns as a helmet. <laughs> Sorry. All right. God bless you, Laura. Talk to you later. God bless Everybody, you, Clark. Like, right. subscribe, comment. All right. Peace out. See ya. Bye-bye.